Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day. Brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Welcome to Face Connecticut, an in-depth look at today's issues. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Face Connecticut. I'm Morgan Cunningham on WTIC News Talk 1080, 96.5 TIC and Light 100.5 WRCH. Our guest this week is the president of the Connecticut Education Association. She is Kate Diaz. Good morning, Kate, and welcome to Face Connecticut. Good morning, Morgan. Always happy to talk about school. You know, and it seems like we do this every year right around this time, getting ready for the school year. Can you believe it? It's another year? I, you know, as, as, as with most school years, time flies. <laughs> it absolutely does. And we're still facing, in some cases, some of the same problems that we did last year. And a number of those problems have changed and morphed a little bit. So let's get an update. If you could give us a summary on what you're seeing as we get into the new school year. So we're still obviously dealing with the the lack of teachers, um, and that's a primary issue that we're worried about is do we have enough teachers to fill the classroom so that our students all have the benefit of a qualified, certified educator? And, you know, we left the school year with more vacancies than we started it last year. And so we haven't done the audit for this fall, but my understanding and sort of the conversations I'm having across the state is that we're facing the same shortage issues and, you know, concerns around special education, you know, who, who's going to have enough teachers to fully staff their district becomes a big question. And so I think that's a primary concern that we have. Uh, and, and we're going to be monitoring that and working with our districts along the way. But I think we, we have some systemic issues in that teacher shortage area that we really, you know, we have to call on our legislature um, and our boards of education to really step up and address. Are there schools that have been hiring, obviously, before the month of August? Like, this is a process that didn't just start at the end of the summer, correct? Oh, absolutely. Hiring typically starts back way back in April, where we'll start to see the first postings for the fall. And that's often due to retirement or um, teachers who do shift districts just naturally. You know, some people want to move closer to home or uh, there's an opportunity they want to take advantage of. But so we start seeing this way back in April, um, the, you know, the openings. And we start seeing really the flurry of activity now where you start to see, oh, my goodness, school's opening in two weeks. Um, and we're still short 50 teachers, or we're still short 80 teachers, or 100. And so that's where the it gets a little bit dicey at this point, because you also have districts who then have to figure out, okay, what does this mean? If I'm short, you know, three English teachers, how are we going to compensate for that? Where do we pick up those sections? What teachers are going to fill those jobs or take on those extra students? So we really have those questions starting to trigger at this point because we know that we're not going to magically create a whole um, cadre of teachers at this point. So we're trying to figure out how do we do what we can with what we have and how do we incentivize people coming into the profession in some creative ways, I think, is really the path we have to talk about going down. 
Kate, what is the onboarding process like for getting a new teacher? For instance, the timeline, I think, is what I'm really interested in. But is it a long process? Obviously, if you hire somebody now, and here we are in mid-August, would they be ready in time for early September or no? Oh, absolutely. If you find a certified teacher, you hire them, they're ready to go day one. The challenge is when we're trying to fill gaps and we um, utilize maybe alternative certification methods or we bring people in from different fields and we need to kind of get them into a certification program or anytime we really start to go down those roads where the certification is not established, that takes a little bit longer. And those people may have, um, you know, you're, you may be talking about a month or so down the road to where you could be starting school with that person not able to really be in the classroom yet. So it largely depends on the certification status. But I know the State, um, the State Department is trying to work with districts, so if they have candidates, people who are in the process of getting certified may not be completed. The State Department does work with districts to try and facilitate that because we recognize that the faster we get certified teachers in the classroom, the better. Kate, last week on Face Connecticut, we had Fran Rabinowitz on of the Connecticut Association of Public School Superintendents. And, you know, one of the arguments that we hear from a number of different sides is that pay has to improve as well as working conditions. And Fran was talking about how she feels that the $60,000 amount as a new minimum to bring on a teacher is something that isn't a reasonable amount for the job that's required. Um, as well as improving working conditions. But speaking specifically about the pay, Kate, what is the problem that districts are having in improving pay and in financial incentives for teachers? So those are, you know, longstanding systemic issues. When we, do, when we look at the pay of teachers across the state of Connecticut, it's often been impacted by the freezes that we took in the, the 90s even, and trying to recover from even a single year of a pay freeze stalls salary increases for decades. Um, I myself, I had five years of salary freezes, and what that meant was I was stalled in my capacity and ability to increase my wages unless I left my district. And so districts are now looking at the only way to really address that is through a surge of capital. How do you increase you know, the allocation of dollars to school districts in a way that targets that money at salaries specifically. Because one of the things that's a challenge for us is that the money that gets sent to the school districts from the state is often undesignated in how it needs to be utilized. So districts have discretion in determining what they do with those monies. And what we've been working with, and I know Fran and certainly I think would echo this, is we'd really like to see some of those state dollars dedicated and targeted at teacher salaries. Because the only way we're going to move that needle in a sort of a universal approach is by recognizing that money has to be specifically allocated to that effort. Um, Otherwise, we're going to continue to have Uh, really the haves and the have-nots, which is not helpful in the state of Connecticut. You have some districts who have starting salaries of $46,000 and some that are getting really close to that $60,000 as a starting salary. And I think sixty dollars is appropriate when you talk about the level of responsibility and expectation and academic demand of these individuals. Um, I certainly know, you know, listen, I look at my own children, uh, an engineer 
right out of college, and it would have been laughable to consider anything less than $65,000, and that's with a bachelor's degree, not even the master's that's expected of our educators. So I think when we start talking about those numbers, we're really talking about professionalizing the salaries to reflect the level of responsibility and expectation of the individuals. And I think it has to be done through direct and clear allocation of those dollars for that purpose. When I was talking with Fran as well, the camp's executive director, and this morning we're speaking with Kate Diaz of the Connecticut Education Association. I'm Morgan Cunningham, and this is Face Connecticut. Kate, one of the things that Fran brought up was working conditions, and it's more than just, say, getting air conditioning in the school, making it more comfortable, making it more breathable, and that's been something that's been debated a lot. But she also said working conditions are making sure that students have the support that they need when maybe a classmate acts out or the teachers have support that they need when they are struggling to get control of the students because there are fewer paraprofessionals and so on. And so there's more to it. Could you talk about working conditions the way you see it? Absolutely. And I think working conditions is one of the driving factors of what's making people think about, do I want a career in education? Do I want to stay in education? And I, I tend to agree that Fran's right, that we, we have to look at it in a broad landscape. I think working conditions is also about class size. The idea that I want to be able to do the best I possibly can for my students. And am I being set up for success? or set up for failure. And as an educator, I sit in my classroom and I know that if I have 30 or 32 or 33 students, I'm being set up for failure. Um, if I don't have access to, you know, a school psychologist or social workers or, um, or school nurses, or I don't have access to paraprofessional support, I, I know that I'm not being set up for success. So I think we do have to look at how are we um, supporting educators in the classroom? How are we ensuring they have what they need? Do we have administrators that are prepared to help us manage um, students who are struggling and have access to the resources in the community that can help those students? And are they prepared to do that work with us? You know, recognizing that the work that goes on in a classroom is far more than just reading and writing at this point. We're also talking about teaching students with self-management, teaching them how to be good collaborators, how to be good friends. And this all takes time and energy. And I would argue that the other component of working conditions that teachers talk about frequently is their own autonomy to make good choices for their students. When we over-regulate a classroom, um, we create scenarios where teachers cannot respond to the students in front of them. We need to start acknowledging that teachers are experts in this field. We've studied, we've worked really hard to fine-tune our craft of, of teaching and give us the space and the grace to do the good work that we are capable of. Uh, but we can't have our hands tied by boxed curriculum, and we can't be um, really hand-tied to some of these in, kind of ridiculous uh, standardized testing expectations. You know, we've tried to create sort of a world in which we expect students to be standardized sort of widgets, and they're not. They're little people with very strong opinions and thoughts and ideas um, and opportunities, and we're excited to work with them as individuals. So the more we standardize our approach to students, the more we harm them. So we're really looking for, you know, obviously the tangibles. You're absolutely right. Air quality will forever be an issue. Teachers shouldn't and students shouldn't have to learn in buildings that are 
are overheated and ventilated improperly. But you're 100% right that we need the supports and the mechanisms in place that really allow children to grow in a meaningful way and allow teachers to help guide that process. But we've got to get away from boxed curriculum and standardized testing um, because those aren't our students. Our students are individuals, and we're obligated to, to treat them as such. It's interesting to think about teachers sometimes as essentially psychologists because they have to understand the personalities of many different children that they have in their classrooms. And it's my understanding that support staff, such as school psychologists officially, have dwindled in many schools. Is that true, Kate, from what you understand? Yeah, absolutely. We're very concerned because we're seeing a reduction in those support services and those support staff. And while teachers are really skilled at reading classrooms and navigating the nuances of our different students, you're absolutely right that there are some students who need a little bit more love, a little bit more attention, and a little bit more support. And that's where we really lean on those school psychologists and school social workers who really provide important um, important guidance for our students and give them the chance to kind of work through whatever challenges they might be facing, develop new skill sets and tools to manage um, anxiety, frustration, some of the sort of very natural, normal things that students are faced with in the scope of a traditional school day, right? This is just sort of the normal part of growing up. And access to those individuals is really a key priority. But we know when we look at sort of the numbers, we have some places in this state where there's one school psychologist for a thousand students. That's just not right. When we know the industry established um, ideal is is closer to 250. Um, But we are worried that we also don't aren't driving people towards those jobs, right? We're not encouraging and incentivizing people to go into schools. Um, And so we have to figure out how to attack this in two ways. One, by increasing the opportunity, right, making sure there are enough jobs available, and then making sure that those jobs are desirable for the individuals. Uh, Because if you looked at a school psychologist and said your caseload is 1,000, I think they'd probably say, I think I can do better elsewhere. So we have to really create working environments that are conducive for those individuals as well to do their jobs successfully. It was earlier in the month, Kate, when you and I had talked about Norwich and the problems going on in that district, and WTIC had covered it. Other outlets did as well. And one of the things that came out of it was a statement from the Norwich superintendent talking about the CEA's concerns about um, a lack of teachers, particularly in that district, that they feel intimidated and so on. And you could talk a little bit more about that. But the superintendent had said that, you know, she had not heard about these concerns essentially until media reports had come out. And so is there any update? Is there any progress on the Norwich situation with the teachers that you know of there currently, any hiring that they're doing. What's going on in Norwich? So Norwich is interesting because there's been a lot of dialogue about what the climate is like. What are those working conditions like, right? That's part of what the issue is, is that you have educators and administrators who stood up and said, we don't feel supported, we don't feel cared for, we don't feel included, and that needs to change. Uh, I think it's disingenuine when the superintendent suggests that this is news that to her. I mean, we can go back to 2019 when there was a parent survey that indicated dissatisfaction with what the superintendent was doing. I think 
I can speak very confidently that our staff and our teachers have communicated some frustrations. Um, they've utilized their typical grievance processes and things like that to establish that things were not going well. And then largely, I think you have to look at the numbers. Teachers and staff spoke with their feet and left in droves. Um, that's a district that lost 160 people last year. If I were the superintendent, I would take that as a strong clue that things aren't going well because that's not just money. People stay with districts because they are, really care about their communities. And what you have now is a situation where people who are heavily invested and strongly committed to the Norwich families are fighting back and saying, we need to do better for our students and we can't have high, massive turnover. That doesn't work for us. And we have expert teachers, and we should be listening to them. We have really talented people who want to do good things for this district. Let's invite them in and bring them to the table in a way that says we value your voice. And so I think, I think the Board of Education has taken an appropriate first step after these concerns have been raised um, by going and uh, attempting to hire an outside, um, hopefully a a really you know, thoughtful person who can look objectively at the district and provide feedback. Um, we look forward to being a part of that process and ensuring teacher voice is clear. Um, but when 96% of your teachers say, I'm afraid to talk to you, um, you have a problem as a superintendent. And so I think there's a culture shift that really needs to happen in Norwich. And I, you know, I certainly hope that the Board of Education is in this for the long haul and willing to really do the hard work of changing culture. Um, but that's going to take time and energy. And I think, you know, honesty and leadership suggests that when you've lost the trust of your people, it's going to take a little while to earn that back. And it's, you know, I've seen her statements about she's going to have an open door policy and things like that. But she has, a, she has a trust issue, and at the end of the day, she's going to have to earn that back by showing people that, you know, she cares about them. She's going to have to go door to door, talk to people, learn who her teachers are, embrace them, support them, find places at the table for them. Um, and we are certainly hopeful and are working with the Norwich Public Schools to ensure that our teachers and our students have the best possible experience. That's what I wanted to go. That's where I wanted to go with this next in that statement, she says that she's open to ideas and feedback that she can get on how to support teachers and staff. And so how do you think that she can best go do that? Is it the going the door, the door, maybe watching a class, things like that? So certainly we heard from the teachers and the students that visibility was an issue, that this is a superintendent that largely felt distant from the individuals that she's serving. So I think that's certainly an opportunity to start to meet and understand what's going on in those classrooms, meet those teachers, uh, but she's got to listen to them and invite them to the table, have conversations about what do we want from our students and how are we going to really provide the learning opportunities and the growth opportunities for the children of Norwich. And those teachers need to be at the table as valued members. Um, and she's going to have to prove to them that there's not retaliation when they, you know, give constructive feedback or they suggest, hey, we're worried about this idea. Could we do this instead? You know, a, a real collaborative dialogue takes time and trust to build. And so she's going to need to, honestly, um, to start to build out who are her relationships with that she can build on, establish more trust. Um, and that takes time. I mean, honestly, it's experience. You know, teachers tend to be 
people who want to trust their administration, want to work with them. So for this breakdown to have occurred, there has to be multiple incidents that would feed sort of the narrative that this is not a person we can trust. So in order for her to turn that, she's going to have to create narratives and experiences where people can feel they trust her. And that is going to take one-on-one. She's going to need to meet with people. She's going to need to be present and visible um, and, you know, demonstrate care for the teachers that are engaged in this district. Kate, there are more reports now of teachers using, say, GoFundMe, or they're going to local media outlets to try to say, hey, we need money for school supplies, pencils, glue sticks, paper, pens, whatever it may be. I mean, it almost, to me, seemed like these were things that when I was in school were provided by the district or there was money to do that. And more and more these days, that seems to be less of the case And in the last few years, I haven't heard too many teachers saying, okay, well, we need pencils, but this year I'm hearing a lot of it. What's going on? So I think a lot of that has to do with the reduction of the federal funds. You know, we're moving away from the reliance on our federal ARPA dollars, and as a result, you have districts cutting budgets. I mean, we actually, in the middle of a teacher shortage, we're fending off um, teacher cuts and actual staff cuts. And so I think you're starting to see the belt tightening and the squeezing of the budgets and going back to relying on teachers to fund classrooms. And we know that that isn't how this should work. We know that districts should be um, funded in a way that teachers aren't asking for glue sticks and colored pencils um, or in some cases, you know, furniture. I mean, we've seen teachers do requests for um, the creative seating and and alternative sort of seating mechanisms for reading nooks or or carpets for reading spaces um, or books for libraries. So, I mean, to some extent, we're kind of going back to the pre-pandemic before the federal funds were released where teachers are saying, okay, I can't afford to really kind of fill this classroom up and meet my students' needs, so I'm going back to GoFundMe. And it's a shame uh, because what we know is that, you know, students need resources. They need supplies. They need consumables. They need paper and pencils and scissors, and they need all of those things that will allow us to really execute a creative and um, high-level curriculum. And teachers invest a lot in their classrooms as a result, uh, but we can't rely on the goodwill of teachers. There should be those things allocated to classrooms. Um, 20 years ago, or more than, when I started teaching, teachers were given a budget and given an amount of money to spend to, to set up their classroom uh, in the school year. That is long gone, and it shouldn't be. You know, the idea that we want our children to have inviting, meaningful learning spaces shouldn't rest solely on the weight of our, our teachers and their, and their shoulders. Um, as we talked about, you know, particularly if you're a first-year teacher making, you know, $46,000, and now you've got to outline, you know, outlay 500 to to $1,000 to set up your classroom, that's just not an acceptable way to do this business. So we do need to look at the allocation of direct-to-classroom resources and say, okay, how are we ensuring that teachers have what they need to to really give their students a a classroom that's inviting and supportive and really has all the things that is going to meet their needs? Um, But that is, unfortunately, I'm seeing the same thing you are, which is the increase in the GoFundMe, the increase in the requests for support. 
and that's a shame. It just shouldn't be happening. Last question for you, Kate Diaz of the Connecticut Education Association. Just a few weeks from now, schools are opening back up. So what are you going to be doing those first few days of the new school year? So I'm really excited to go out and meet with new teachers, um, get them excited about the school year, because despite all of the challenges we face, it is still the best job in the world. Working with kids and having the opportunity um, to spend time with them and help them grow and to learn, you know, that, that's really the best part of this job, and it's not hard to get excited about it. So my favorite part of the opening of school is having the opportunity to meet with new teachers, um, welcome them to the profession, encourage them, get them excited about the work that we get to do. It's a privilege to be a teacher, for sure. And it's, um, uh, it's an honor that we get the trust of our families um, to care for their kids while, you know, they're at school. And it's an exciting time for us to be able to really generate that enthusiasm uh, for the days to come where, you know, we, we have the opportunity to get to know these really great kids in the state of Connecticut. Um, so that will, that's where I'm going to be spending my time is with the new, the new teachers. All right, Kate, thank you so much for coming on Face Connecticut this week, and we'll have to do another update during the school year, okay? Absolutely. Thank you, Morgan. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Face Connecticut is a production of the News and Public Affairs Department of WTIC Radio. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network.